Every Wednesday from 2 to 3 p.m., WRFL invites you to office hours. Real-world conversations with UK professors. No appointment necessary. Representing the 16 colleges across campus, Office Hours brings professors from every corner of UK to share their adventures in academia. Go beyond the syllabus and learn more about the people behind the research. We'll be demystifying higher education one interview at a time. Stop by every Wednesday afternoon. Office Hours is available online via wrfl.fm or on the airwaves on 88.1 FM Radio Free Lexington. You're listening to WRFL Lexington 88.1 FM. My name is Cheyenne Holman. I'm your host here on our first episode of Office Hours, a talk show with faculty. And I have here with me a faculty member from the Department of Gender and Women's Studies, also affiliated with Anthropology and the Social Theory Department, Srimati Basu. Would you like to introduce yourself? Hi, I think you did a good job of introducing me. So I teach in Gender and Women's Studies. I'm on sabbatical this year, but um, typically I teach the courses connected to um, law, violence. I teach a course on love. I teach theory. Do you want to talk about any of your courses that you like teaching the most? Oh, this is very hard to pick from. This is like, <laughs> which child do you love best type of question. Oh, okay. But, well, what um, are you teaching when you come back from sabbatical? I Maybe don't know. That's I don't know. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, but, you know, I, um, I was just telling you that the last time I was in the studio, um, I taught this graduate course called Love. You know, because of the nature of the field is to teach courses across disciplines, so interdisciplinary courses, and also to maybe teach as much transnationally as we can. So that was a course where we sort of looked at, you know, discourses of intimacy and, you know, ways in which people think about love, etc., across different cultures. And so also I teach a course on law, which similarly um, is both interdisciplinary and um, so it's called gender law and courts, I think. Okay. And so, but when you go in to start to teach a class about love, like how do you write that syllabus? What goes uh. into that? Some of it, you know, sometimes I think that the most uh, courses that come out well, right, begin somewhere with your research or things that you're reading and uh, you think what are the questions to draw out that students might be able to engage in the most. And so, as you know, in my research, I've been working on um, family law and family courts. So I was really interested in the ways in which people think about questions of emotion, right? Um, nowadays, people like to use, you know, it, it's become a big academic word to use this word affect, um, <laughs> meaning, you know, after generations of writing on student papers, affect is not effect. Mm -hmm. So now affect <laughs> is a word we use all the time, um, meaning something like emotion, but people are talking about it also as we don't know sort of where... Um, um, sort of bodily instinct takes over, like something in the realm between our culturally expressed emotions and the instinctive bodily responses lies this middle zone of where we might put affect or love. or So anyway, so I wanted to look at um, different cross-cultural ideas. And one of the things that I really wanted to do was, you know, first of all, decenter this kind of um, Hollywood romance idea of love and also to not think about love in terms of the couple form, you know. So to look at it more broadly across family structures, across things outside the family, you know, maybe nationalism, friendship, things like that. So, mm, so you, you would include nationalism, nationalistic feelings as like feeling of love for one's country? 
as a, a type of love. Yeah, I'm trying to think if I did that in the readings or we just talked about it. But sure, you know, so the ways in which um, emotion is marshaled for people, right? Or yeah. people people um, feel that they talk through certain kinds of ideas. So. How does that study of love factor into the sort of gender studies that you do in terms of law and gender violence and family dynamics? Is that central to some, some of your work or is that sort of like a secondary emotional element to looking at like the, the mechanics of law? Since I work, I work on family courts, right? So these are courts in which people negotiate uh, marital trouble. And so the part that, you know, the, the way I came into it was to look at um, the sort of language through which people um, frame relationships, the ways in which people talk about emotion, you know, how what kinds of things are um, best received, either in court or among people. And um, I often tell the story that, you know, when I was in college and, you know, soap operas, I mean... In the, I think there were in India where I grew up, um, commonly soap operas began to be seen maybe maybe from the mid eighties or so, and now they're just like insane how many there are. <laughs> but at that point, I would uh, watch them and then I would say to my mom, like, you know, no one really. This is not what I was a literature student. Right? I'd be like, no, come on, look at novels. No one really behaves like that. And then when you're in court for a while, you're like, no, no, people really, <laughs> you know. We don't know, right? I don't want to get into I as as um, an anthropologist or a cultural studies scholar. I'm not in the business of whether you genuinely feel something or you really think it or you're just saying it. But, I mean, I think with love or the ways in which we talk about love, that's one of the uh, ways in which you approach law is through talking in certain you know, popular frameworks. So through talking about family in a particular way to um, the judge will hear about marriage in a particular way and be more receptive to that idea than others, right? Or just very minimally, right? If you've, um, sometimes I would take, I used to teach this law and culture class. It was called law and order, actually. Actually, then it was called law, order and justice. So in <laughs> one of those versions, we would go to um, like a defelony court, like the whole, it was a first year seminar. So we would go to this defelony court and observe things. It's really interesting. Most people have, you know, been to traffic court and that's it, right? So one of the things you saw is that how, you know, how much a person's demeanor, you know, just what they're wearing, how they speak, how they talk about their issues affects the their reception from the judge, from how people ask them questions. And so, um, so I am actually interested in law and the ways in which people... Um, present themselves and whether the ways in which we present themselves can be heard. So I just want to say one, uh, just to add a thing there, that people have studied, you know, one of these things is this kind of um, lack of disciplined behavior in court in a, in a kind of positive way, right? So the, the lawyer, like, coaches the person to say, just say this, stick to the script, stick to the law, right? Just stick to the rules, but there's this group of anthropologists who talk talk about rules and relationships. So the more people come to court and they don't stick to that script, they often bring in facts that would seem irrelevant to their lawyer. 
but they are trying to narrate their lives right so the law is a place in which they are working out some things now so this, that discourse which is the discourse of relationships um is often far less receptive to judges who are like whatever move on does this fall under the case or whatever <laughs> but you know i mean that's one of the ways in which those of us who study the culture of law think that people treat the legal realm as a way in which to think about certain issues or bring have the world know certain things whether they're relevant or not you know or whether they are useful for a case to go forward or not right mm-hmm. i mean this is possibly what interests us in watching um, judge judy or <laughs> people's court or <laughs> what are the other shows now so in your experience observing court proceedings and that sort of thing how do how do those televised like court programs compare to what really happens in the courtroom you know the, like so my um when you know when i'm doing field work much of your life consists of like you're sitting on a court bench mostly things are coming through mostly people are asking for uh another court date a delay or whatever and in a in a given day there'll be you know a really pretty small number of substantive long hearings right but i would say that when there is a hearing they're not exactly you know scripted in the way of judge judy but um they're often pretty dramatic to to me they're pretty dramatic because they speak a lot of emotion they speak of you know they often speak of ways in which you know regular people i mean all of us right don't really know the laws that govern our lives right so when we stand in front of a courtroom um it's not really clear exactly you know where the outlines of what is what is wrong or what we are approached or you know how the ordinary ways in which we lead our lives fell afoul of that you know so yeah i have i i do feel watching judge judy makes me very comfortable in that way <laughs> right but you know once um i haven't i mean i've been working on this piece i haven't really um published it anywhere yet many years ago i went to a taping of divorce court the show remember that no i think it's been oh god you're too young to <laughs> so it's like do you remember it i remember yeah like well if he remembers it then i just haven't seen it <laughs> yeah this was maybe maybe 10 less than 10 years ago mm-hmm. and You know that that was really interesting because they come in the producers come in and they say you know like everyone has to like whatever turn their caps in board you know no logos show all of that and then they kind of set it up to have certain moments of emotion right so this woman had i think the um the husband had um accused her of bursting into song at clubs or whatever and something like that and so she sang the star spangled banner on tv <laughs> so but that you know that's a kind of performing to it being a show in a way that you wouldn't in court and court real court yeah <laughs> but yeah how did you get started studying law and family law i have no idea but um i i think you know i am i mean people just saying it's the first week of classes right people are thinking about um what it is they want to get into um in school and i just think that so many times um what for for people who have gone on to be professors we wonder like what was that one class you know what was that one one memorable class that tipped you over the edge into being interested in something i think as a graduate student though i was in english but i took this class on women in law that was a political science class mostly that was a dual level class and i think she was a 
really interesting teacher who made us do stuff and i i guess you know also i was in the space where so i was a literature student you know i did my bachelor's and my masters in english i think as i decided i wanted to do something that kind of had a more ethnographic element where i could sort of talk to people in real life i wanted something that um actually dealt with sort of social justice issues but where i could talk to people and that seemed to fall you know nicely with the ways in which also women studies had developed as a field so something mm-hmm. like that yeah what was your interest in literature before you got into this field i sadly realized <laughs> you know <laughs> i like to read and i like to write now that's not exactly what one does necessarily in literary studies it's right? true <laughs> uh, <laughs> so you know i didn't um i mean i st- i still think that maybe um if i had thought about it maybe i would have been more interested in a writing program or a journalism program but i enjoyed you know i really loved um reading literature and i think um you know learning literary analysis learning to look at texts closely is something that is not unuseful in anthropology so i'm happy i came that way but i'm really happy actually interviewing people and you know sitting in on you know meetings or courtrooms or whatever and watching um people go about you know snooping in on people in their lives <laughs> like so you like that the voyeuristic sort of yeah, element of your work <laughs> Or, But you know maybe I mean <laughs> journalism is a way of doing that as well. Absolutely. Right? So yeah. Yeah. You're listening to Office Hours on WRFL FM 88.1, Lexington, Kentucky. My name is Cheyenne Homan and I'm here with Shrimati Basu. She is a professor of gender and women's studies with a focus on family law in India and we're going to talk about South Asia and some of the issues that are facing India right now. So I know the spotlight has been on South Asia a lot as far as the gendered violence thing and sort of people trying to raise awareness about the the state of the law regarding how that's dealt with. I know that that doesn't affect the your like family court much, but uh No, I've actually, you know, I look at marriage law, so I mm-hmm. have actually been very interested in looking um both at the ways in which rape law affects marriage okay and also at which um domestic violence um the ways in which people bring domestic violence claims to court right so i think to answer your question there's been a lot of stuff on it's unclear it's extremely unclear to me that rape has actually increased right i would i would contend that from anything we have seen it's not possible to say that you know numerically or quantitatively rape has gone up right but yet we see i just saw that this minister said oh it's affecting tourism the new york times reported um that i don't know some travel site in india said that i don't know how we know this that mm. it's because of uh, the reputation of sexual violence that it's gone down but um that people are uh, sort of staying away from delhi now um you know what's interesting there i think is the way in which you know so this all goes back to um well most immediately it goes back to this kind of gruesome rape in december 2012 where this woman you know um was taking a bus home after a movie and just was kind of brutally um attacked and killed and uh, died eventually from those injuries um following which there were you know there was a whole lot of um 
anger protest you know sort of productive conversations eventually a change in certain aspects of the law but in fact the women's movement has been looking at this you know for uh, another you know 25 years before that and um what happened as a result is some parts of the law changed some parts of the law actually have become more um, stringent in ways that might pose really quite what shall we say sticky situations um that are yet to be tested mm. so um um because there's basically you know one of the things that was removed were like um differences between um levels of um sexual assault so um it's yet it's really new so we are yet to see what comes out of that but one of the things that um we've been interested in i've been because i was looking at the connection to marriage is um a number of cases in which you know when um young girls often underage but maybe some just just um of age might have an affair with someone and run away and when they run away the parents have filed charges of rape and kidnapping against the men and often um, um a colleague has a beautiful study of a woman who was charged as an accomplice right in this case so imagine being charged as an accomplice to your own kidnapping and moreover to your own rape right yeah. so um so that's the sort of that's one of the cases and this other set of cases i've looked at um actually had to do with uh, women who have filed rape charges right not fraud charges but rape charges against men with whom they've been cohabiting for a while who with whom there was a quote unquote promise of marriage which mm. has not you know and then they were like okay we you know we're breaking up or we've changed our minds or whatever yeah so those two so all of those when we look at the num- so in the last month there have been some stories pertaining to rape and when whenever you hear the total number of cases all of those cases are in the mix right but we know right all of us know and this is as true of our campuses this is as true of the us that primarily the predominant number of rapes are where among tell. acquaintances oh, within yeah. families right um they're not you know strangers the, yeah right. no matter the gruesomeness of this guys jumping them in a bus mm-hmm. right that's not where it happens so in india in particular the by far the highest number of rapes have been um often in the um con- i mean i wouldn't say the highest number but because we know that intrafamilial rape is uh, really common but a large large percentage of rape have been in the ca- um, context of high caste men who have you know felt that they have um access to um low caste women in the community so they've just lifted up right so what but you don't hear that in those discussions right so a certain kind of image becomes really prominent and unfortunately what's happened as a result is you know the response has been to say i mean people are saying this to me i'm 50 years old um like don't go out at night don't you know like the things that we did 10 years ago 15 years ago when i was in college you know whenever that was more than 20 <laughs> years ago suddenly are seen to be curtailed because of this right mm-hmm. so in fact what's happened is that the laws have become more strict in a way and um whether or not they're enforced as they should be and that they've resulted in you know curtailment of certain kinds of things for example 
um, women's cell phone usage is being curtailed in certain ways, mm-hmm. right? Or what sense does that make? Right. Yeah. So why why would you think that is like? So it's assumed they're running off with you know. Yeah, the idea that um, somebody that their own natural actions would have to be curtailed as though they were the ones at fault here is disgusting. (laughs) And meanwhile, we are no closer, right, to stopping perceptions. So -hmm. that's one of the ways in which I've been looking at, you know, what's what's behind rape charges and how do we look at it? So it's, I think, from our point of view, how do we have less rape in the world? We have less rape in the world by challenging the ways in which it, you know, it can be a crime, not just by locking up people, but by thinking why, you know, why is that a mode of attack? Like, think of all the militaries and how much rape there is in wartime, right? That why is that seen to be a way to wound? Mm -hmm. You know, like you have to sort of get at um, this notion that the way of ruining a woman's life is possibly through rape, you know, and what could be the way of challenging that? What could we do to, you know, unsettle those ideas? So, anyway, so that's that's one of the ways. And um, there's also the other thing that was a hot topic in India in this last year when I was there is that there is a bid to bring in something in divorce law that is called irretrievable breakdown of marriage, which is essentially a no-fault um, kind of well it's not no fault divorce in the sense that any one party can claim that you know as a, as a ground of divorce but the way it's being brought in is to also you know in the US where you have no fault divorce you often have also um, no property division no division of assets right in that mode but here there is a proposal that if you had if you had for example uh, irretrievable breakdown People might, in this case, often men who have the more money, um, might be entirely too trigger happy to leave their marriages um, and not make any economic restitution for people who are really dependent on their income. So the proposal is to have this new ground of divorce um, together with a some a some kind of notion of matrimonial property yet to be um, defined. And so these two have um, really created a stir among these uh, various fledgling and not so fledgling anymore men's rights groups, right, who see this as an attack on both both the rape laws and the laws of division of marriage and property, right, who um, see that as an uh, attack on their money, you know, would you liken that at all to the men's rights activists in the United States? I think they're, I am increasingly discovering that they have a lot of um, connections with each other. I think there are some, you know, specificities in India that are different. For example, a lot of this, um, so um, I was in India for the last academic year. I had a full right. Um, I was interviewing a lot of um, these groups and um, much of the work that they did um, came from having been accused of domestic violence cases, right? And so in India, the way that law works is that if you, you know, we as women, men are not allowed to file, you know, whether they're beaten or not. But a woman can bring charges and without corroboration can send the husband and the in-laws, you know, the parents-in-law, the sisters-in-law, the sister-in-law's husband, whoever, all to jail, Um 
Wow. In the short term, so it's often used by the police, you know, also as a way of is sort of as a corrupt way of getting people to pay up. Mm-hmm. And so, lots of men's rights activists had got into this activism because of their involvement in these groups. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, because they had uh, been accused. Sorry, because they had been um, accused of these laws then they had either been to jail or they had got around it and so that I think is very specifically different from other countries because that's a particular corpus of laws that works in a certain way but yeah. but in other ways you know so, so some of the ways in which they like to challenge gender for example they try to uh, want to challenge um, the idea of men being breadwinners and you know trying to step away from that or mm-hmm. you know so it's it's really interesting that it has it's very interesting for me to figure out all the resonances it has globally to these other movements you're listening to Office Hours on WRFL FM 88.1. My name is Cheyenne Homan. I am the host of the show. And right now I am accompanied by David Cole, who is a fellow WRFL DJ, Srimati Basu, who is a professor of gender and women's studies in the College of Arts and Sciences, and Dr. Edward Kasarskis, yeah. whose name I've been typing and have not <laughs> not yet learned to pronounce until this moment. I didn't learn how to pronounce it until I was in first grade, so you're okay. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. All right, so we're going to transition from uh, talking with Srimati about the um, sort of political situation and family law in, in South Asia. Um, thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you. That was really fun. Yeah. I had a lot of fun talking to you. I learned a lot of new things. Um, Do you have anything you'd like to tell listeners if they want to find out more about any of these issues? My book is coming out on... on, um, It's called The Trouble with Marriage, Feminists Confront Law and Violence in India, I think. So... um, Still a few months, but maybe January. Okay. And then it'll be. I'm carrying the proofs around right now, so it'll be real pretty soon. Thanks. Excellent. Well, thank you so much for joining us. Um, Dr. Kasarskis, thank you for joining us today. You're welcome. Yeah, so um, we brought you on because you are uh, the chief of neurology, as I understand, and um, a professor of neurology. So do you that, want to. That's correct. Yeah. I have two hats one at UK and one at the VA. Okay. Right. Yeah, so tell us about your hat at the VA first and then your hat at UK second. Well, they're both intertwined because, I mean, I go back and forth from one side to another on any one given day. And so uh, in the neurology faculty at the VA, we're all UK faculty members. Uh, We have a primary academic appointment at UK uh, in the medical center, and there's five of us that uh, take care of the patients at the VA. It, it's perhaps a bit of a schizophrenic life running back and forth and learning two or three or four computer systems and, you know, <laughs> having lists of multiple passwords and training sessions and the like. But, uh, but uh, you know, we do have our medical students and other professional students that come over to the VA, and that's their clinical experience. So, uh, um, you know, it's inpatient venues, outpatient venues, and, of course, on the university side, we have outpatient venues and inpatient venues as well. So uh, we kind of race back and forth, see patients on both sides. Yeah, what's a typical day like for you besides the racing back and forth? What sorts of work do you do? Oh, my gosh. Uh, you know, that depends on, on the month. So right now I'm uh, attending a physician on our ward service, and, you know, we have whatever patients come into the ward uh, and try to take care of them. We each have outpatient clinics over there. And, of course, the administrative work is, <laughs> is the administrative work. And, uh, you know, on the university side, uh, I have a, several outpatient clinics. So many of our U.K. faculty will, you know, have inpatient responsibilities over there. So 
it, it, it's a lot different than on main campus because, you know, our, our students come for short rotations and a lot of it is bedside teaching. Typically in the medical school, the first two years are classroom and some professional hands-on things. Uh, but then third and fourth year is a lot of learning, learning how to interact with patients of, of various stripes and figuring out problems and all that sort of stuff you hope doctors are good at doing. Yeah, so I also understand that uh, UK has the only certified center for the ALS Association. Is that correct? Yeah, that's, that, that's the reason I'm here, I guess, is, is uh, otherwise we wouldn't have just a, a regular faculty member, maybe. <laughs> so, so, yeah, ALS is Lou Gehrig's disease, as you know, and uh, that's my personal research interest, and uh, I've been, you know, working on, on various aspects of things since probably the early 1980s perhaps even before you were born. I don't know. It, it's it's a very scary thought. You know, this the, this illness is very tragic uh, when you when you just read the raw statistics of it. You know, it's it's one of those illnesses that is a age related phenomenon. So, you know, if you think of the the big three of neurodegenerative diseases that we deal with all the time, everybody knows about Alzheimer's, you know. Of course. Uh, we have many family members who are afflicted. Everybody knows about Parkinson's because that's very common in the community. And, and ALS is one of the three of them, uh, you know. And these individuals will be just like Lou Gehrig. Uh, in fact, 1989, I, I had a paper published on an analysis of Lou Gehrig's batting average as a clue as to when his illness began. So, oh. so yeah, I can... That's interesting. You yeah. can be one of three people who have an autographed copy, but <laughs> but uh, but but the serious the serious matter is that you know individuals will start developing weakness just in a limb. You know, it could be very nonspecific, very common, like you know you have a foot drop or your arm gets a little bit weak, and over a period of time, which measures in weeks or months, you know you start having weakness in a, the other limb, or it might move to the arms if it started in the legs. And, you know, over a period of, you know, months to years, it'll involve chewing and swallowing and speaking. And uh, people uh, have a shortened lifespan, which is really the cruel aspect is because, you know, on the average from the onset of weakness until death, uh, uh, it's about three and a half, four and a half years, you know. And and it, it, the diagnostic process takes a long time because, you know, it's not a very common thing. So if you look at Lexington, Fayette County, you know, our population is, what, 300,000 or so. And so you would expect roughly about five people per 100,000. So that translates into 15 people, perhaps, in Fayette County at any one time. You know, so, you know, a, a hardworking family practitioner is going to see, you know, hundreds of people with backache and headaches and you know, depression and anxiety, and you go through all the list of very common ailments, and then up pops the one, perhaps in his or her professional existence, that, that turns out to have ALS, you know. And so it actually takes, on the average, 9 to 12 months uh, to get a secure diagnosis, which, which when you flip it around, that's almost like a quarter of a person's lifespan right there. Yeah. You know, it's really very sad. So, you know, Lou Gehrig died in 1941, and, you know, he became symptomatic in, in 1939. And, you know, he went a year playing playing baseball uh, when, when he batted 
only 295, you know, down from his 345, down 295. Man, that'd be on instant replays these days. And, and, and uh, you know, he went that whole season and started up the next season and was miserable just because he was very symptomatic, and he went up to Mayo Clinic, and that's where he was diagnosed. And, and so, uh, you know, that was decades ago. And, and, you know, the difficulty is we don't have a blood test. So if, if you tell me that your your right leg is weak, and I say, well, okay, well, we'll look at back back issues and limb issues and check for diabetes and all sorts of stuff, you know, and you're the one person out of 100,000 this year in your age group that's come down with ALS, you know, that's like, you know, finding a needle in a haystack kind of thing. So so that, that impacts on, uh, you know, treatment and drug development and, and a whole bunch of other factors. Yeah. So you said that it's um, one of sort of the big three of, uh, right. you know, those diseases. Do they, does, does ALS only affect uh, elderly or, like, older, like late no, middle-aged people? No, 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 people? no. I mean, Lou Gehrig, when he died, was, I think, 39. Yeah, because I you thought know. he was no, younger. No, he, he yeah. was obviously in the, in the prime of, of playing. Mm-hmm. But, but if you take a snapshot in the population by decades, it's distinctly rare in your age group, may I say. And, you know, when you get to 50s, 60s, 70s, 80s, it, it increases uh, within each, in each bracket. Okay. And it's a bit, more, a bit more common in males than females. And, uh, you know, there's been emerging research that actually it's more common in Caucasians than, than in African Americans, hmm. and which is, had been swept under the carpet for a long time because there was consideration that maybe you know, blacks might not have had access to specialty care and those sorts of uh, arguments. But, but over and over and over again, it's been shown that that seems to be the case. And so that's, that's emerging. So, so I guess being a, a white guy is a risk factor for ALS. And, and uh, you started out by asking about the VA. Well, I mean, that's um, military service turns out to be a risk factor for ALS. We were involved with the early study on Gulf War veterans. And I It'll be three hours to explain that study, so I won't bother you with that. But the point, though, is that from that and other studies, that it seems to be a a small but coherent body of uh, evidence that somehow military service and all that entails is a risk factor for ALS. So the VA has decided that if you're a military veteran with ALS, you are just by that very fact service-connected, which means compensated by the government. Uh, because something in what you did caused the injury, just like if you lost an arm or a leg uh, in military service, you know that would have caused your injury and debility. So, so that's been extremely helpful for the patients. And um, you know, you mentioned the the certified center, our ALS center at UK, where we have a small multidisciplinary clinic at the VA as well. You know, it, it's very. Uh, different because I mentioned how infrequent it is in the population and yet on on Tuesday we'll have six or seven follow-up patients and you know on Monday I'll see you know two or three new patients and so this is a very skewed very skewed view of 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 this patient population and your your average very hard-working neurologist in the community might see one or two maybe patients that turn out to be concerned for that so we get individuals from around the state and our adjoining states to, to, to see if we can figure things out. Yeah, are there other ALS um, 
centers in adjoining states to Kentucky? Oh, yeah, sure. I mean, uh, all the major medical centers, universities have affiliated ones. I mean, so, you know, West Virginia up in Morgantown and, and Ohio State up in Columbus, uh, Indiana and Indianapolis and Emory and Georgia, you know, and Vanderbilt and Nashville. <laughs> you know, so, so, so you know, the, the, the patients have so many things that need to be attended to. You really do need has super specialty care. So, I mean, a, a typical clinic visit, if one of your relatives had ALS, you know, would, would last roughly three hours by the clock. And in that one three-hour block, you'll have, you know, physical therapist, occupational therapist, the speech therapist, respiratory, nutrition, you know, and, and a social worker, and nursing, and myself. And, and every one of these clinicians have uh, different disciplines to contribute because many of these uh, patients will need, uh, you know, motorized wheelchairs. They may need ankle braces. They may need walkers. Very often, people, if they lose their ability to speak, I mean, here you are on the radio station. This is hard to believe that somebody might not be able to speak, but they, but they, they cannot. You know, they might not even be able to vocalize. And computers such as you have around your studio have been quite the boon for ALS patients because there's um, you know augmentative communication you you've seen probably interviews with speeches of Stephen Hawking mm. <laughs> uh, you know I mean he, he he blinks and presses a button as it were and and his prepared speech is is spoken by the computer and you know this really works extremely well because you know, you don't have to move your, your head or your eyes or, 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 I mean, your head or your fingers or anything. The eye gaze technology is really quite something. So out of the box, uh, some of these devices will sit about as far away as the microphone is. And even, even through my glasses, it'll pick up the movement of your eyes as you scan through a keyboard. And so if you wanted A, it'd blink like that, and that would be a mouse click. And so people can do that. Uh, and send you a message. I mean, I had an email from a patient in Louisville, and I'm, that's how she did it, I'm sure, because her hands just don't work. So, you know, when I first started uh, being involved with these patients, uh, you know, back in the 1980s, I realized it's probably hard for you to remember it. That was uh, before computers, right? <laughs> you, yeah. you probably have an iPhone on your desk or some other device, and, um, you know, that that did not exist. Yeah, and, that was landlines and rotary phones, right? I mean, yeah. it would be difficult yeah. to... Yeah, and, and, and these individuals, in order to com communicate, there would have to be some eye-gaze boards or something like that, and that was, that was it. You know, and we've, we had a few examples of very cruel situations where a person might have actually been illiterate, you know, and they couldn't speak hmm. and they couldn't spell, hmm. you know, and, uh, man, that, that was really difficult. So, so the accessibility to computers like this has really revolutionized the environmental controls that patients can have. I just wanted to know they what... They could even write a book. <laughs> <laughs> what actually goes on in... Uh, oh, oh, what causes all what this mischief? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And also, so is that, I mean, is there, a, are you mostly focusing on, you know, adapting people to dealing with it? Or is there, oh. a, if you know what causes it, is there a way to... Right. Oh, those are those are excellent questions. Uh, so, so you know, I would say probably ninety percent of the individuals, so-called sporadic, for which there is no clear cause. I mean, I mentioned some of the risk factors that that are there, some of which you're born with, and uh, uh, the other ten percent 
have some family member you know so so there have been now maybe 16 20 different genes that have been identified so the fir the first one out of the box uh was in uh enzyme called superoxide dismutase, you know, uh, copper zinc SOD. Oh, my I, favorite. I, I know. <laughs> uh, yes, among, among, among your many enzymes that you've had on the show, probably that is one of your favorites. But, but you know, these are very uh, special families. So, so you, you, you would have uh, someone in, in your parents' generation, you know, maybe aunts, uncles, maybe one of your parents. So it's an autosomal dominant, meaning it's, it's every generation males and females equally affected. So SOD1 was the first one that was identified. And then soon after, you know, of course, with, with new technology for sequencing, you know, more genes have been identified. So we have been working very hard, uh, you know, with colleagues, Dr. Heining Chu in, in biochemistry here, Dr. Durrett St. Clair in toxicology, and I have been uh, collaborating on this other gene, FUSE, F-U-S, and we, we just happened to have a, a very large family scattered in, in Virginia and in this part of the, the country that belonged to one sort of super family. So, you know, we've collected a lot of samples and, uh, you know, skin biopsies and we have their cells in culture and everything. But, but the, the point, though, is that this gene is causative in this family. And so, you know, there are a lot of potential therapeutic windows uh, on the basis of that. Now, you know, when you start saying a gene has been identified, this is more than just saying, you know, you're a family who's got SOD1. Gee whiz, that's, that's interesting to know. I mean, you, you can do genetic testing for, for this, of course, and you could create experimental animals that would have your abnormal gene. So you could, you know, those have been done. So there are SOD1 mice that you could order for your lab. There are SOD1 rats. SOD worm, one worms and fruit flies, and I'm sure a few other critters that are walking around that have that that develop ALS. You know, so it's a very mm. excellent resource for controlled laboratory studies. So the 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 fuse one has been a little bit more difficult to to come up with. One of the faculty in biochemistry has a, a fuse fruit fly. So that's one of the one of the uh, little little animals that is a, a research uh, animal for this research. So so the other one that has really come to fore is a new gene that has been identified. Uh, now it's probably uh, three and a half four years ago. Brian Trainer at NIH and and a woman at Mayo Clinic in Jacksonville collected large families with uh, not. Any of these other mutations, and and this this uh, thing is goes by C9 ORF, which is too much information for the air. But but the importance of this is that it crosses over into the world of dementia, crosses over into some sporadic patients for whom there is no family history. So uh, we have several you know family members with the C9 ORF abnormality. We'll just leave it that way. So, so the genetics is really important, obviously, for genetic counseling with a single family, yeah. you know, because if, if you were afflicted with ALS, you would want to know, are my children at risk? Are their children at risk? Are the cousins at risk? You know, that sort of stuff. And so, you know, this really helps frame that discussion with them. And it le it'll lead to a therapy and diagnosis. So, yeah. You were mentioning earlier how there are the big three, Alzheimer's, yeah. Parkinson's, and ALS. Yeah. 
and the, how ALS seems to not be getting as much attention, really, yeah. is the gist of what I got there. Sure. So my question is, what is your opinion on this, let's call it a viral phenomenon now, yeah. of the uh, ALS ice bucket challenge and how that's bringing a lot of like yeah. mainstream attention to this disease? Yeah, well, you know, in a way, uh, Lou Gehrig being so publicly affected by this, did that back in the 1940s and stuff. And, and, you know, people in the United States still know it as Lou Gehrig's disease. I mean, that has absolutely no currency for someone in France. You know, they could care less whether it's Lou Gehrig's disease because Charcot is actually the, the guy who first identified, yeah, who first identified and, and, and put this together as a disease entity. But, but you know, the ice bucket challenge is actually two weeks old. <laughs> two weeks old. I was in uh, Atlanta for a meeting at the CDC about the National ALS Registry, and the gentleman sitting next to me at the table was making comments about the Ice Bucket Challenge. I was like, what is the Ice Bucket Challenge? I had no clue, you know, and, and, and that's really where it took off. It was a, a young man who was a baseball player in Boston who... Did not invent this, but he, uh, you know, I'm not quite sure which, how it was first invented. But, you know, he and his family pulled this out of the uh, the archives of fundraising, and, and that's where he, he got to this challenge thing. And, uh, you know, there have been a lot of articles written about the marketing aspects to this thing. I mean, most recently in Time Magazine this last week, there's a whole thing about this. And, and it is very much a social media phenomenon. We, we did it here, you know, with President Capilouto. He and his wife were very kind. He was one of the, the dumpies, and his wife was one of the dumpers on this whole thing. And you can find it on uh, UK Now, I think, uh, for Friday. And, and so, uh, you know, we all participated. The gentleman in, in Boston was very clear. You know, he wanted to raise awareness for ALS, which he himself had. And, you know, he wanted fundraising uh, not to any one designated, in, you know, entity. He wanted just fundraising f more for, for ALS research, you know, just wherever, wherever people wish to donate the money. And, and so, you know, we, we are happy to <laughs> receive donations here at UK, you know, and other organizations are, are in the same way. And, and, you know, part of, part of that uh, really is an awareness. Now, you know, I, I think the, the, the danger with all this is it's going to be like a feeding frenzy. And, and you know, people will remember the ice bucket and all the screams and, and wet shirts and whatnot and forget that there's a serious disease behind this whole thing. And, and I think that's the upside and the downside of, of all the social media kind of thing. People will remember, oh, gee, this was really something, and I've got somebody on my YouTube of having this thing happen and and uh you know that 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 whole business is is there but people if they if they come to a clinic and interact with a patient you know i mean i think they're fairly blown away with with this whole thing i i must say you know when when you have six of these patients come through at the end of the day you know you're physically exhausted i mean you're like <laughs> you're really pretty blown out of the water now you asked the question about what causes this well you know so the what is it like what is yeah, it, yeah. what does it do in yeah, what does it do in the body? And, and you know, when, when I said the big three, these are neurodegenerative diseases, meaning that specific groups of nerve cells, for some reason, become dysfunctional and, and degenerate and die. And so in the case of ALS, if you were in England, they would say this is a motor neuron disease. And, and because these are 
is an affliction of motor nerve cells, motor neurons in the brain and motor neurons in the spinal cord. So if I'm waving my hand, you know, the, the first nerve cell more or less is in my motor cortex in my brain, and, and this single nerve cell is, is huge. Uh, I mean, it will go from the, the brain maybe to uh, my neck or maybe down to my low back. You know, a single nerve cell, when you look at it, is, you know, depending on whether you're a basketball player or not, you know, it could be, you know, a meter and a half. You know, very huge, very long, a single cell, you know. And then the second cell in this whole linkage is from the spinal cord out to the muscle. You know, so if you wanted to raise your foot and you're seven foot tall, the second nerve cell is starts in your low back and goes all the way out, you know, to your leg. So two huge nerve cells. So th those are the ones that are at the epicenter of degeneration here. Mm -hmm. And, you know, it doesn't say anything about your thinking or your memory or sensation. It's all motor movements. Yeah. So before we wrap up, uh, do you want to tell listeners any ways that they could get involved with raising awareness or if they wanted to get involved in any kind of volunteerism or fundraising for ALS? Yeah, well, you know, we, we, we do have a, an ALS, a UK ALS research Facebook page. I don't even have a Facebook page myself. They don't, <laughs> allow, they don't allow you to have Facebook pages if you're over the age of 35, apparently. So, so... <laughs> So, I begged to so, so, <laughs> so, so that's there. And, and you know, uh, you, you obviously uh, can look on, on the web and find abundant information about things. But, I mean, this is, this is kind of our local, our, our local UK Lexington kind of activity. So it's, it's been very interesting <laughs> the last two weeks Absolutely. in the world of ALS. Yeah, well, thank you so much for joining us, uh, Dr. Ksarskis, with the uh, VA and UK Neurology Clinic in the ALS Center at UK. Yeah. 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 Thank you for inviting me. Yeah. Thank you. And thank you, Shimadu, again for You're joining welcome. us. Office Hours is produced in cooperation with WRFL and the College of Arts and Sciences at the University of Kentucky. This broadcast theme song is Sandu, performed by Hugo Gruppi Contini and provided by the Free Music Archive. <laughs>